Hey, baby. Love you lots. I was thinking. How did you do a front flip? You could totally do an issue of Hellblazer and it have tied into 2000 AD. Could I? Yeah. They all worked on 2000 AD. Fair enough. Oh, what was the thing you were going to suggest to him this morning? Uh, Alias. The issue, the standalone issue where he hires Jessica, whatever her name is, Fletcher. And how, and how does that fit Jessica to the theme? Fletcher. Uh, to tie in with next week's episode where I've chose... Aliens. Aliens. Yeah, it, it begins with A. <laughs> Jessica Fletcher. Yeah, it was t- that's totally an A. What's her name? Jones. Jessica Jones. No, no, baby, not Jessica Fletcher. Yeah. Go on, do that again. Okay, okay fine. Just because you want to? No, no. Yeah, yeah. Thinking, well, what would you do then? I don't know. I've not thought about it yet. We're only, we're only doing it next Thursday. So I've got plenty of time. Yeah, okay. Oh, oh, oh. An email has just arrived. A cheeky email. Should we read it? Or should we, should we say it? No, no. You know what we should do with that one? Go on. We should save it and actually do it. This has just arrived, so we've not read it. Okay. That works, doesn't it? You don't get yeah. to edit then. Yeah, well, I can edit it in post, can't I? You ready? Okay. All right, well, I'll leave it to you, but that, that option is there to do an issue with Alias. Because it begins with A. Yes, yes. That's how it connects. Why is she drawing a toilet? It's an animal. Oh, right. That's what I'm feeling. All the songs. Does she not want Doctor Horrible? Doom, doom, doom. Bad horse, bad horse, bad horse, bad horse. It's not going on. <laughs> Do you not want Doctor Horrible? It's been five years and you don't know the words. <laughs> I've still got a cough. Stop it! Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Hey kids, comics! Clark Kent has a job. I just want to go on a date. Faulty metaphor. Kryptonite kills. You're assuming I met the green kryptonite. I was referring, of course, to the red kryptonite which drains Superman of his powers wrong, the gold kryptonite's power sucker. The red kryptonite mutates Superman in some sort of weird... Guys, reality. Besides, I can just tell something's wrong. My spider sense is tingling. Your spider sense? Oh, stay behind and put around in the back cave with crusty old Alfred here. Ah, oh, no, I don't know Alfred's side. I forget Alfred had a job. But gee, Mr. White, if Clark and Lois get all the good stories, I'll never be a good reporter. Jimmy Olsen jokes are pretty much going to be lost. Sorry. Avengers Assemble, let's get it going. Hey, kids, comics! Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. And welcome to another Hey, Kids, Comics. We need a better introduction than that, don't we? I think that's, that's fine. Is that okay? Oh, Does yeah. that do the job? Yeah. Do you remember when we used to write introductions to the show? I do. And we'd do entire paragraphs. Yeah. And we'd try witty word play and banal banter. I, I have to think really hard but yeah I remember <laughs> and now it's just hi hi yeah right. let's move into emails hello lovely listener bye Ek. <laughs> okay moving into emails as fast as we can because we have nothing to talk about this week no I've not done anything interesting I never do anything interesting you never do anything interesting so it's been kind of boring yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah but may you live in interesting times is a curse yeah so I, I quite like boring mm. I'm down with boring our first email this night is from Christopher Keith. Hello, Chris. Hello, Chris. Mighty Leylands. Mighty Chris. I am writing in this email as probably the only contrarian that you will find for 90s books. While I enjoyed much of the era, I think that in rereading the part that I didn't enjoy as much as I should have was... Dun, 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 the death and return of Superman. 
dutifully following those from crisis to crisis bars. I have been reading along, and I'm actually finally ahead of them in the coverage. This reread was my fourth or fifth time rereading this era, and I was hoping that my feelings about it would change. Nope. I'll keep my book assassination brief, as I don't hate the books. I just found them lacking. Here's why. While I love Superman, it's those supporting characters that I tolerate. Lois is okay when not written by Mr. Byrne as uber-bitch. Jimmy, no excuse for him at all. Perry, what a caricature of a person. He, A, smokes cigars. B, says don't call me chief. And C, really loves the paper business. Other than that, there's not much there. And his subplots in the late 80s, early 90s with Jerry, his son, bored me to tears. Ron Troop. Let's be honest, he should have been named Ron Token. No characterization, no real personality, until he knocked up Lucy, of course, and was really just there to be another subplot that detracted from the action, and to show that the planet had diverse hiring practices. Keith, the orphan, another subplot, a character that would get into trouble requiring Superman to rescue him. We already have that. Her name is Lois Lane. I know it's crazy, but I don't like only seeing Superman in a portion of the story. Yes, you need supporting characters, but when whole sections of the story involve Keith's freaking cat... Don't care, don't care, don't care, don't care, don't, don't, don't care! I don't think Chris cares for the supporting characters in the no. Superman books. It's just a vibe that I'm getting from the email. Mm-hmm. He's not actually said it, though. No, no, he's not actually come out and said it. It's all subtext. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My reason for disliking the death, continues Chris, was that Doomsday came out of nowhere to fill a need. No purpose, just destruction. It's too pat, and I never liked that the character had no motivation. It's dull. The funeral, the story, is entirely composed of supporting characters. Grrr, see above. And no Superman. The return would have been interesting had I not had to endure the White Rabbit. Light Steel, however, great character. Superboy and Tarna Moon and that awful Ron Troop narrated story where the cyborg essentially infiltrated the White House with alien technology, giving the present a communicator with no questions asked. And, of course, the Eradicator. Once the real Man of Steel reappeared, I was ecstatic. Until the her. Yeah, looks so stupid. And the fact that it remained for a few more years, wow, it wasn't even trendy then. No, it wasn't a mullet, it was just long her. Long, bad her. The key thing here we should remember, John Bon Jovi had had his hair cut by this point. Metallica had cut the hair almost at this time. Superman looked like Kit Winger. Bad, bad I say. And trying to make him hip and cool after rebirth was painful. Van Halen was actually referenced, despite the fact they'd run out of gas by 1990. I will never understand why Jürgens and the crew created these books in a vacuum. Go to the mall, find the cool kids, make Superman look like the cool kids. Well, older, without the acid-washed acid washed jeans. Yeah, I was totally a mullet. It was not. It was a mullet. Uh, was, no, he was, no, He was rocking no. the Gibson. Was he rocking the Mel? Yeah. Was he? The rest of the 90s, well, I would like to say that I've enjoyed the post-death stuff in the fourth or fifth reread, but I don't like to lie. You had the whole space thing, which is okay. The overpowered Superman, which was fun until he was the size of a hot air balloon, really. Until Loeb came on board, I was just buying out of habit. I think that I dropped the boots for a few months, but out of guilt, picked them all back up as the 90s wrapped up. Superman Red and Superman Blue was boring, and the resolution with the Millennium Giants, as I think they were called, was about as anticlimactic as you can get. I'm sure as I get deeper into the second half of the decade, I'll find the cool, but as of now, Superman, get a haircut. You don't look like a hippie. You look like the guy at the gym wearing Zuboz. Was that the name of those stupid pants? And he's put a picture into the pants, which I quite like, but I, I don't know those pants. They look like skin zebras. If you went, yes, they do, yes. If you went to the gym in the 90s, you saw this guy. Well, maybe only in the States. So maybe that's why I, I didn't go to the gym in the 90s. You, would, you were like five when the 90s ended. Yeah. So you're forgiven. Would I be considered a 90s kid? I See, I often debate this. See, I, I was born in the early 70s, so am I considered a 70s kid, even though my primary 
growing up bit was in the early half of the 80s. So I kind of straddled the line. Yeah, but you were eight when the, when the 80s began. Yeah. So but, you would have been a 70s So kid. I like being both. Do you? Yeah. But would I have been a 90s kid? Yeah, pretty much. Because as we all know, only 90s kids remember the 90s. It is indeed. You were, you were a child of grunge. I was. In many, in more ways than one. <laughs> <laughs> but we don't want to go into that here. No, no, let's not talk about your conception. Uh, anyway, that's it for now. I really hope the ridiculous picture came across on the email. Oh, it certainly did, Chris. I, I, I'm envisioning nobody wearing those pants. Except for that one guy in the gym. Except for that one guy in the gym. They still sell them in retailers. I may have to buy a purse so I can walk into the gym and gauge the response. <laughs> if you do that, you need to film it and send it to us. Yeah. Because that would be the awesome. It's nothing to do with comics, but it'd be funny. Thanks for the excellence that is surpassed every week by even more excellence, Chris Keith. Oh, I don't know about that. Are you going to cut it out just because it's self-aggrandizing? Yeah, I should have cut that, shouldn't I? Anyway, I didn't, so whatever. (coughs) Our next email, Superman Through the Ages 5. Is that 8? Yes, Superman Through the Ages 8. The end for now, until we do Superman again. 5 plus 3. Which I would imagine we will do. Yeah. It's our good pal, Rob Stubbs. Hello, Rob. Hello, Rob. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Michael. Gets pushed away from the keyboard. This is Doom. Not a professor, even though I have many degrees from the Latverian Technical College of Doom. But Dr. Doom! Doom is not pleased that while listening to your podcast, Doom has only starred in one episode of your coverage of Superman out of a total of eight. Doom does not care to hear pathetic excuses of how it was some insignificant illegal alien 75th anniversary, or that this was about DC Comics, as clearly DC stands for Doom's Cool Comics. <laughs> Doom demands even more coverage in the 51 weeks of Doom casting. If you dare defy Doom, Doom will destroy your country. Have a good day. <laughs> Kim Jong Doom. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> Gets back to the keyboard. Sorry about that, continues Rob after being interrupted by Dr. Doom. Dr. Doom stopped by to offer a free trip to Latveria, and I saw I was writing an email to you guys, and he felt he also had a sending commentary. Whispers. I think I will avoid going to Latveria, as there is a lot of fine print in the brochure about Doom not being responsible for any damage that I might suffer in the Latverian free healthcare that is mandatory, which includes mind control or sudden transformations into monsters or spontaneous human combustion. I presume I can start whispering now. Yeah, that sounds safe, by the way. Does I'd, it? I'd go for it, yeah. What, the Latverian free healthcare? Yeah. <laughs> if it's mandatory, you don't really have a choice. Not really, but... I didn't even know there were two Spider-Man-Superman team-ups, continues Rob, until this, as I've only read one with Lex Luthor and a giant robot bursting from a building, which wasn't very good looking back at it from an adult's perspective, but really cool when you're a kid. Whilst it might be helpful if I had the book in front of me, I'm going to wing it, as I don't have the book, and my memory of what you discussed about the book will be my guidepost for the remarks. Spider-Man came off as a B-level sort of hero in this, with Superman being an A-level hero, despite the fact the presence of Peter Parker on the scene is the only reason the Parasite knew it was a trap. Of course, without Parker being near the Parasite's prison to start with, there would be no escape, either. The Parasite is an interesting concept, in that he transitioned from just draining powers to draining knowledge and skills as well, which would make a Parasite versus Rogue battle an interesting idea. Ooh, ah, yeah, would that? Who'd win? Ooh, Parasite versus Rogue. Parasite? Do you think? No, no, Rogue would win. Why? Because Parasite can get his powers drained. If Rogue uses Parasite's power then she can drain him of his energy. And even though he's draining her of her energy, 
she doesn't lose her anymore. mutant ability would counteract him yeah because he loses energy anyway whereas she doesn't right so she'd win that's very well thought out mm. and I'm going to go with you because I don't have a counter argument but I like that it was good but Rogue versus Parasite is an excellent idea yeah it's a pity Didio and Thingyo don't talk to each other isn't it? it's not Quizada anymore is it no is it not it's Axel Alonso who's editor in chief now alright I don't know that they're not friends uh, they could be for all I know of course, the fact that his powers seem to shift to suit the needs of the various studios in doesn't help keep anything really straight. Andrew, at least the Parasite isn't as bad as Dr. Light in his lustful urges. <laughs> yeah, as far as I know, Parasite hasn't raped anybody. <laughs> Although, it's the new DC, there's still time. <laughs> Dr. Doom's plans to have universal control over all energy sources through clever manipulation of the Parasite's power seems a little bit ambitious, but as I haven't attended the Latverian Technical College of Doom, I can't point to any flaws in this plan. I think Doom is watching me, so I'm very carefully going to avoid any criticism. Doom is always watching, but Doom does not care what you think. So as soon as Mary Jane has refused Peter's proposal and took off, he becomes Don Juan Spider-Guy, hitting on all the ladies and failing with all the women of Metropolis. I think the real reason Parker goes back to New York is the cops of Metropolis have asked him very politely to get the hell out of town, as we didn't see the other 90 women he also hits on while there. <laughs> no wonder Art can never die. She has to keep her nephew under control. I remember you saying that they didn't mention Uncle Ben dying in the Origin Recraps, which I could be wrong about. Did I say recrap? <laughs> yeah. Recap. Which I could be wrong about. I wonder if that was deliberate, so, as in the angst stuff wouldn't work well next to the guy whose whole planet got destroyed. My Uncle Ben got killed by a robber, so my life is so sad and I'm responsible for all the awful things that happen for when I'm off being unhappy, as I could have done something as Spider-Man if I wasn't being selfish, versus my whole planet got destroyed and my adopted parents died of a fatal virus I couldn't cure, and the shrunken bottle city of Candor contains the sole remaining portions of my destroyed homeworld's people, but I can't figure out how how to unshrink them yet, and if I have sex with Earth humans, I kill them, unless we are in my special Red Sun room. <laughs> is that a room in the Fortress of Solitude? It's like, he's got a Red Sun room, and he goes in and presses the button, and the lights dim, and Barry White comes on the stereo, and then the bed comes out, and it's a heart-shaped bed, and suddenly Superman's like, giggity. <laughs> That's the room that was never... You know, in the, the maps of the fortress, they always had the super secret room. That was, that it. was it! That was the fantastic! The super sex room was the super secret room we weren't allowed to see. Yeah. <laughs> Let me just dial up the red sun, that's, Lois. That's why Superman has to give Batman the kryptonite ring and everything, because he found it, Batman found it when he was playing that prank. So he's buying his silence. <laughs> So Batman's like, so what's with the, the heart shit bed? It's a ring, keep it quiet. And the low lights and, and the stack of Barry White CDs. What's all that about, Kal-El? Uh, Rob continues, I wish they had something more creative for the other characters, like Wonder Woman, who's just there to fight and then get captured. It's an okay story, I guess. I would have liked to see J. Jonah Jameson and Perry White engage in fisticuffs over the way the Daily Bugle goes out of its way to sensationalise how sinister Spider-Man is, shaping the public perception of what J.J. believes versus the way the Daily Planet reports news. Of course, Perry is friends with Superman, while Jonah views Spider-Man as an adversary. I have an idea for a crossover. What if Joe Chill killed Uncle Ben and Aunt May? Ooh, that's actually another really good idea. Yeah. That's, I, I quite like that. 
Bruce Wayne realises that the man who killed his parents had also killed the youthful teenager, Peter Parker's aunt and uncle. He adopts Parker, not realising that this is Spider-Man. This could also become a whole mini-series where Bruce Wayne goes across the universe adopting various orphans. <laughs> I just had this image of Bruce Wayne being like the Pied Piper. Orphan Incorporated. Orphan Inc. <laughs> Genius. Latveria has a very nice orphanage called Doom's Orphanage. It is so nice, Doom has to kill parents so their children can find nice new homes that are much better than their old ones. Doom's Orphanage also provides all children there with eye dooms and doom max and weekly visits to Latverian culture and Latverian cuisine. Doom curse for all the insignificant lesser intellects a great deal, despite what that wider Reed Richards says. This doom sound like a top-notch book. I love this free health curse. Free health orphanage. An orphanage. He looks after kids. Yeah. I don't know why he's got such a bad rep. No. To be honest with you. Until next time, your American pal signing off. P.S. If you don't hear from me soon, could you send a rescue party to Latveria? Has I probably been kidnapped? We'll uh, <laughs> we'll get right on that. Yep. <laughs> Thank you for emailing in through every Superman, Rob. It was much appreciated. Our next email is from Robert Ludwig. It is simply titled Erwolf, which is a surefire way of getting my attention. <laughs> Howdy, Andrew and Adam. No, wait, that's not right. Hold on, I got it. Howdy, Andrew and Anya. Nope, nope, still not there. I know. Howdy, Andrew, an eldest child. That's pretty close, wouldn't you say? Howdy, Michael. It's, it's, hello. <laughs> feel, feel great being that ass of thought. <laughs> Well, you're not the father of the show. <laughs> uh, I'm only kidding. No, I know. Uh, I just wanted to let you guys know I've been listening to you two for hours the last few weeks. Oh, well, I hope your hearing gets better soon, Rob. Mm. You see, I am selling a house and have just been painting it. I've been listening to older episodes of Hey Kids Comics. I started with the start of Night's End and I'm currently on the Spotlight on one. That is 13 episodes. Also, since Andrew's been on other shows on the Two True Freaks and Michael Bailey networks, along with your new and classic episodes on TTF, I have been hearing a lot of you. Is this the point where he tells us how fed up he is of yeah. us at this point? And he just, just wants us stop. to stop. <laughs> stop <laughs> putting on new content. Not the spotlights, just everything. Everything. Just I'm, it it's on my iPod. I'm painting. I have no control over the fact he's just playing you on a loop. That shuffle hits me. <laughs> Uh, Rob continues oh no he actually says he wants to say keep up the fun entertainment we will endeavour yeah. to do just that I have been laughing at so many of your comments I always feel a bit weird when I read something like that because it means I'm laughing at myself yeah. which is the height of ego <laughs> but no Rob has been laughing at us well, like no he's been laughing with us yeah. or has he been laughing at us Both. Uh, I suspect you are correct our funny accents our funny accents yes and they're not fake yeah. apart from when I do a fake one obviously I do have just one question when is the Erwolf episode coming out? No questions on comics, just about Erwolf. I myself have never seen Erwolf, although I am aware of it. Have a good day, Robert. <laughs> Should we do an Erwolf episode? All right. <laughs> no. The minute we do an April Fool's episode, we've we've jumped the shark. Have we? Yeah, I hate April Fool's. <laughs> I can't stand April Fool's. Let's do April Fool's Day, um, our April Fool's next week then. Yeah, because that would be a complete shark, wouldn't it? It would, actually, yeah. Our next email is entitled, Wow, an episode centred on Councillor Diana Troika. <laughs> oh, wait. It's Luke Jack and Eddie. Yeah. What's, it, what's his intro this time? Oh, I don't have one prepared this week. Are you? No, no, we'll leave it this week. I won't force it. Well, I meant what was his intro, but... Oh, his intro this week is, Dras Vitsi, comrades. 
Trasvitsi, Luk. Vladivostok, vodka. Inga from Sweden. Vodka rockish nukes, no. Uh, <laughs> it was invented by a little old lady from Leningrad. How much more Russian do I know? It is a glorious return to form, a nostalgic throwback to when Hickey's comics was a Batman podcast. Yeah? That's German, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, the Troika story sounds like a lot of fun. I didn't think we made it sound like a lot of fun, but we will take that. As a staunch anti-communist, I find myself drawn to communist bad guys very frequently. So a story revolving around such characters usually works for me. See also the stories involving the Titanic 3 from the Avengers, the Soviet super soldiers, or anything to do with the characters (laughs) Titanium Man, Crimson Dynamo, the Red Guardian, or the Unicorn, who I always thought was neat because he's neither Soviet nor Chinese. He was Czechoslovakian, of all things. Is he a My Little Pony bad guy? (laughs) Unicorn. Oh, shoot, it's the Unicorn. Well, there's a uni baby in a comic we're going to cover tonight. (laughs) I wonder why that is. Seriously, I do wonder about that. It doesn't need to make sense other than the basic let's beat up the Reds sort of mentality. I mean, 50 years of Iron Man history, my favourite bad guy is the Titanium Man. Hmm. There was a pretty badass story with the Titanium Man. What's that? Where he almost kills Happy Hogan. Is this an old story or a new story? It's a new one. An old one, even. Is it? Yeah. It's in your omnibus. Have I never read my Iron Man omnibus? Because nope. you keep bringing up all these Iron Man stories that you've read in that omnibus that were quite good, and I'm like, I don't remember that. Yeah. Or maybe I've never read it. I tore through it, and you still haven't read it I've yet. still not read it? No, I will have to get on that. You will. Well, anyway, continues Luke, I definitely need to find these books to read for sure. I don't think Troik has ever been collected, has it? Has it not? No, I don't think so. And I actually think it's the end of the story. It's the end of the whole night's stuff. In mind doing the new... It's not in the new one, though. No, the new one finishes at the end of um, Prodigal. So it doesn't have Troika in it. Uh, The expansion of the Bat comics, continues Lucas, continues to this day, as you said. It's insane the number of Bat family books which are published every month by DC Comics. At the start of the New 52, a full 13 Bat family comics were published every month. That's one-fourth of all the mainline DC comics, for those of you that aren't good at maths. That number has actually increased. And one of the so-called Superman family of titles is Superman Batman. Grumble. What does a story named Troika have four parts? That's as dumb as the Matt Fraction Iron Man story of the Five Nightmares being a six-parter. Don't! It's a good story, though. Is it? Is it good, that one? Oh, yeah. Was that the one I bought you when you were ill? Yeah. I brought all six issues over for you, because I'm Five. too damn nice to you. The six. So it's six, here. Wait. Yeah. No, because I'm missing one issue. Oh, yeah? Because you only bought me the first story arc. The next issue was a one-off team-up with Spider-Man, and then I have the rest in... In hardcover in graphic hard novels. Right. So it would make... It wouldn't make sense for them to start at issue 8 and have the first 7 issues. I'll leave you to ponder that while I continue Luke's email. Also, another shorthand for communism is to bemoan free market capitalism, a la the Titanium Man after the fall of the USSR. Boris Bulski, which is a great name, was a loyal member of the party and a true believer in communism. And so the fall of the Soviet Union was to him a tragedy, which spun his motherland into corruption and decay. Good story from right before the whole Team Tony fiasco. Das Vidania, Luke. P.S. I didn't mean to cause an existential crisis for Michael by getting Andy to talk about sons and daughters. Yikes. <laughs> He's over it now. So let's not bring it up. He's forgotten. P.P.S. It can't rain all the time. Can't rain all the time. Can't rain all the time. Talk about your high school flashback. I didn't have a high school flashback though, Luke, so I think there's something you need to tell us it about your high school. It rained a lot here. <laughs> And an email that has literally just arrived. Sphinx Magoo! Well, it's 25 minutes ago because we sat down to record, but it literally arrived as we were recording. Yeah. So Sphinx Magoo 
and it's simply called podcast. So we have not read this email. So it's the first time. So it's it's virgin, like a virgin, yeah. read for the very first time. There's one bit now where we list every single. Story. <laughs> <laughs> Just a lot of bleeping going on. Yeah. Greetings, Leyland's greetings, Sphinx. I write to you once again for thank you for making me laugh as I go about household chores in stately Magoo Manor. <laughs> stately Magoo Manor. Imagine my surprise when I fire up my MP3 Victor Ruler. Start up episode volume 2, number 8, Happy Birthday Superman, part 3. And I hear you reading one of my letters. Wonder of wonders, you even pronounced my name correctly. There are plenty of folks on this side of the pond who never mastered the intricacies of reading the letters of my name as they were put there. <laughs> But I digress. Well, you're, you're very welcome. Sphinx Magoo seems to be quite an easy name to read, unless it means his real name. Obviously. I greatly enjoyed your synopsis of Superman's history in the 50s and 60s, and enjoyed hearing about Superman 149. I couldn't help but think that elements of this story seem to find their way into DreamWorks' Megamind, especially the bits involving the prison and the warden. In case you haven't seen it, Megamind deals with an alien mastermind, much like a blue-skinned Lex Luthor, who finally defeats his long-time nemesis, Metro Man, much like a blonde-haired Superman, and what happens afterwards. It's a theme which is also explored in Edison Rex from Monkey Brain Comics, available through Comicsology. Edison Rex is written by Chris Roberson, who is known for rescuing the Superman title after J. Michael Straczynski abandoned his grounded storyline, who had a very fine interview with John Cierantorez. See, I can't pronounce that one, though. <laughs> Is that Okay. on the Word Balloon podcast where he discusses some of his influences for the story? It might be worth checking out. Yeah, I quite like Chris Roberson. I quite like that he doesn't pull any punches with regards to (laughs) Straczynski, does he? No. It's interesting how you point to Superman's consistent hope that treating Luther as if he could be reformed informs most of Superman's actions, even in the later stories with the boxing match on the Red Sun planet, which reminded me of the Superman vs. Muhammad Ali story. Hearing about that makes me mentally flash forward from these stories in the 60s to the 1980s, soon after Lex Luthor was given his purple and green power suit. These are stories in this period where Superman seems to have given up on Luther ever reforming and is shown getting angry and impatient over Luther's behaviour. I guess after 20 or 30 years worth of stories, there are limits to even a Superman's patience. I was glad to hear that you mostly avoided stories which had Superman acting like a huge jerk. These stories seem to be all the rage as memes for the internet lately. This leads me to a possibly unexplored, untold story. Q-way back music, if you wish. I've been listening to the Fantastic Cast podcast, and I just heard the episode where Stanley and Jack Kirby make an appearance, but not really, since their faces were hidden, and this gave me an idea. This little fourth-wall-breaking story nugget is a great way to retcon stories and events which seem illogical or out of character. If these comic stories we are reading are based on real people, much like the Mr. T comics from the 80s, and kudos for bringing in a Mr. T reference, then it's possible that these storytellers simply got it wrong. In this way, there could be a Superman story where Superman visits the DC offices and has a little talk with Mark Weisinger about how poorly he's been depicted in the books. This could help explain away a lot of the meanness which would rear its head in the storylines. It could also be used to explain stories where the science is just wrong. Granted, DC doesn't make stories like this nowadays, but maybe it could just show up in a book like Astro City or maybe even Edison Rex. John Byrne did an issue with The Thing where he did that. What, show up in Rex? The Thing went to... Marvel Comics offices and said this story you just published this isn't how it happened and John Byrne went sometimes your life's just really boring though we have to you know extrapolate and Ben chucked him out of a window (laughs) it was a funny little story I quite liked it anyway I must go housework is never ending and I'm sure there's something I'm neglecting thank you for your podcast they make my chores go faster sincerely Sphinx Magoo aka Abel Padilla 
you're very welcome. And I probably pronounced it wrong after you thanks for saying it. So that email made it in just under the wire. And dead on 30 minutes, more or less. How awesome's that? So we're going to take a quick break and plug a show, and we'll be right back with our two picks for But There's Not a Superhero in It season. You keep changing the name of I keep changing the name, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm mercurial like that. We'll be back in a minute. Bye! No, not bye. See you in a minute. That's better, isn't it? Okay. After your trailer for Pop Culture Outfit, David. I got the script. I need some music. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Pop Goes the World by Men Without Hats. That's too cliche. That's been done. I've said it before and I'll say it again. No more in ABBA. Oh, sorry, General. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I got it. You know, a dear friend once said to me, it's a lot of fun when everyone's a dork of some sort or another. And I thought not only are those words to live by, it's an idea worth celebrating. So that's why I created Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that is about, well, let's just say it's completely random. (laughs) One episode might be about movies, the next might be about comics, the next might be about music. All that matters is that I'm giving you a recap and critique of stuff I enjoy and you're having as much fun as I am, or at least I hope. So join me, Tom Panneries, for Pop Culture Affidavit, The Sworn Testimony of a Dork. You can find a new episode at least once a month at popcultureaffidavit.podomatic.com and notes, essays, and other stuff once a week at popcultureaffidavit.com. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. At no point in your rambling, incoherent response were you even close to anything that could be considered a rational thought. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. I award you no points, and may God have mercy on your soul. And we are back. Michael is still eating Easter eggs. Because uh, I saved mine. That's very nice. So it's not chocolate biscuit tonight. Oh. It's actual, your actual Cadbury's chocolate Easter egg. I'm treating myself, yeah. Well, you munch away. I think I will, yeah. While I let the lovely listener. <laughs> Singular. Yes. <laughs> lone no, listener. The lone listener. Yeah. No, fire. what we're doing tonight. I'll try not to rattle my tinfoil. Try not to rattle your tinfoil in the cheap seats, though. Is, is that, is John Lennon. Is that annoying? Yeah. Yes, exceptional. Okay, Carry on, I'm going to throw it over the room. <laughs> For tonight's No More Superheroes pick, I have chosen the venerable 2000 AD. To understand 2000 AD and what it has become, one has to understand the UK comics culture of the time. Settle down. (laughs) It's going to be a long one. 
I hope people like these long, wobbly introductions that I keep doing. Because if they don't, I'll just stop doing it. Maybe just fast forward. <laughs> Cheers, dude. <laughs> Thanks very much. <laughs> these, little, these little potted history lessons that I pour my guts into. Yeah. And you're like, yeah, people just fast forward them. They get the benefit of fast forward and I have to sit and listen. <laughs> Except for Superman Spider-Man. Uh, you didn't. You didn't listen through that fifteen-minute synopsis. No, I had to listen to the fifteen-minute history of. Oh dear God! Do you see what I've got to work with? Anyway, the mid to late seventies in the UK were a time of immense social upheaval, and the comics on the news agent shelf were slowly starting to represent this. Warlord and battle were heroic tales of World War Two during do but were receiving some notoriety for their violence, but nowhere near the level of action. A weekly comic that featured different strips, as with most UK comics, it was an anthology, that focused on low-level or working-class heroes. Hookjaw, an unabashed parody of Jaws, featured the violent adventures of a great white shark that ate people gleefully, but also contained an environmental message well ahead of its time. Dredger was the antithesis of James Bond, a no-nonsense spy who dealt out lethal force with glee. And Kids Rule OK, a strip following the adventures of violent gangs of children that roam the streets after a plague wipes out the adult population in 1986. The most controversial, however, was Look Out for Lefty, which regularly featured scenes of brutality on and off the football pitch. Action was condemned by authority figures, the very figures action existed to take the piss out of, and was eventually banned from sale. The strips were edited and retooled and action returned some weeks later, but with all elements of controversy and political subtext removed. With the demise of action, the publishers, IPC, realised what Gene Roddenberry had realised ten years earlier, that if you talk about exactly the same things but hide them within a science fiction framework, then stupid people, i.e. adults and politicians, won't know what you're talking about. To that end, 2000 AD was born. The creators of 2000 AD had grown up loving US comics like Green Lantern with its wild adventures and crazy ideas, but were also being spurred on by the political climate of the times. And with these two elements in place, 2000 AD launched on the 26th of February 1977. The cover to the first issue is quite unremarkable, featuring a huge plug for the free gift. All UK comics had free gifts. In this case, a space spinner, i.e. something you just chuck across a field. Theoretically, it'll come back to you like a boomerang, but it never did. Uh, it's Dan Durr and Mark One that seem to get the lion's share of the attention on the cover. In contrast to its punk ethos, it's interesting to look back now and see that in the early days, 2000 AD was launched with the idea that they were resurrecting Dan Durr, pilot of the future. Dan Durr is the quintessentially British hero of the interplanetary space fleet who first appeared in Eagle Comic, released in April of 1950. Created by Frank Hampson, whose wonderfully clean artwork showed an optimistic future where stories of valiant, daring do and heroism stood tall next to magnificently designed spaceships and futuristic landscapes. The most memorable part of the strip, however, was Durr's arch-enemy, the Mekon, a super-intelligent leader of the alien Treens and ruler of the planet Venus. The Mekon was an excellent visual creation, heavy-lidded, with an elongated head and cranium larger than the body it sat upon. This green-skinned terror first appeared in the first strip, Pilot of the Future, and reoccurred as a bad guy in every other strip thereafter. Hampson would work on the strip for nearly a decade, relying on a few assistants for help when he fell into bad health in 1955, finally quitting in 1959. Dan Durr would fly on without his creator for another decade, but nine issues short of its 1,000th issue, Eagle was discontinued in April of 1969. 
But you can't keep a good man down, and Durr was resurrected in the pages of the newly launched 2000 AD with its first issue. Perhaps most strange about the first issue, though, is there is no sign of 2000 AD's most popular character, Judge Dredd. Dredd became, far and away, the most popular character to appear in the comic. Designed by Spanish artist Carlos Escuera, Dredd's look of a fascist cop given free reign to mete out justice was inspired by Escuera's own background under the rule of General Franco. The symbol of fascist power in Spain was the eagle, and this was given a prominent position on the costume. Dredd was also given the unique feature that he never took off his helmet, and he quickly became the standout feature of the comic. The strip also introduced its own language to readers, with swear words such as drunk, and the editor of 2000 AD, Tharg, referred to readers as earthlets. The comic itself was filled with thrill power. Readers were greeted with Borag Thung, earthlet, and this drew the readers in with its entertaining mix of sci-fi fantasy and angry political social commentary. The UK in the late 70s and early 80s were a time of strikes, riots and extremism, and 2000 AD was perfectly poised to tap into the civil unrest of the times. However, 2000 AD is much bigger than just Judge Dredd. As with all UK comics of the time, 2000 AD was an anthology title, and, as such, had a number of strips in every issue. I've heard a few people wonder, were we not enraged that we picked up a comic, say, Spider-Man Comics Weekly, and only got ten pages of your actual Spider-Man, and then ten pages of Thor, and ten pages of Iron Man? Well, no. The Beano, the Marvel UK titles, Action, Warlord, Deadline, Warrior, they all consisted of short seven to ten page strips, meaning we got a lot of bang for our pennies. And as with the case with Marvel strips, we got to read stories like Rom and Micronauts and others that may not have been able to carry their own comics. Granted, as with all anthologies, some strips are better than others, but the ratio in 2000 AD was remarkably consistent, especially in the early days. Purely at random, I have chosen 2000 AD Prog 10, which went on sale the 30th of April 1977. The comic would be in orbit every Monday and cost 8p Earth money, but 30 cents in South Africa, Australia and New Zealand, $1 in Malaysia and various different currency denominations on Mercury, Venus, Mars, Saturn, Neptune and Pluto and cost a whopping 20g on the asteroid belt. Sounds like a lot. It probably was in 1977. You know, and I think I read this somewhere and I'm not exactly sure if it's true, but now, or at least a few years ago, Thug the editor mm-hmm. it was actually five people what in real life oh. yeah but I, I know there's multiple editors working on 2000 AD I thought I'd come in and wow you with my facts but, but you've you, well, you ruined it for me because third's real dude yeah yeah he's, five, he's controlling five people oh he controls five people to do his bidding yeah oh that's perfectly okay I'm totally down with that he, he can't come to earth to our oxygen can he not no that's fair enough The cover informs us that the top thrill this week is Dread, who is avoiding the whirring chainsaw of a decapitated robot that has called me Kenneth emblazoned across its chest. The robot revolution has begun, the cover states. All humans must die! Capitalising on a new film, Star War, runs another headline. Dan Durr fights the Battle of Jupiter. This is quite up to date, as Star Wars would not be released in the UK until January of 1978. The cover is by Carlos Esquera. I wonder what frequency the robot runs on. Think about it. (laughs) (laughs) That was awful. You laughed. I did. I I did indeed laugh. That's very true. The first strip in the comic was Invasion. 
Invasion was a gloriously over-the-top strip set in the then-futuristic 1999 and obviously inspired by the Nazi occupation of Europe. The Volgan Empire have attacked Europe and the UK and subjugated them. The strip follows the adventures of a band of plucky resistance fighters led by former lorry driver Bill Savage. Following on from action, the heroes in 2000 AD would frequently be working class heroes. Invasion started out with the invaders being Russians, but IPC quickly changed them at the last minute for fear of offending the Russian embassy. Savage became a ruthless resistance fighter after the Volgans murdered his wife and two children. He's a typical no-nonsense anti-authoritarian figure you will recognise from these types of stories, and is in many ways rather one-dimensional and boring. The strip scores in its inventive action sequence and violence, which is probably all you needed when you were ten years old. Invasion was created by Pat Mills and Jesus Blasco and written by Jerry Finley Day, with many different artists providing the... The art, obviously. <laughs> with them being artists. Yeah, think about that when I wrote it, didn't I? Oh, providing the letters. <laughs> yeah, with many different artists providing the letters. <laughs> <laughs> For this prog... The invasion story ran thus. Dartmoor Prison has been turned into a maximum security complex by the Volgans, where anyone who speaks out against them is imprisoned. Two prisoners, Smith and Evans, try to escape, but the next day their bones are brought back as a deterrent to others, and all without the Volgan guards lifting a finger. Inside the prison is Samuel Frost, an aeronautics engineer and Nobel Prize winner, now languishing in Dartmoor. Bill Savage and his number two man, Peter Silk, are dispatched to rescue him, as he has information useful to the resistance. Upon arrival, Savage and Silk are told about the Dartmoor monsters, but Savage pours scorn upon the very notion, and they manage to sneak close enough to Dartmoor to gleefully blow away some Volgan scum. They grab Frost and make a run for it, but the Range Rover they came in has been destroyed. They turn to see the more monsters, actually a pack of wild dogs, burring down upon them. Very brief. Yeah, I like, the, I like the first issue where the volume just kill everyone. Uh, page one. One of the things I really like about Invasion is that the Volgans are so one-dimensional. They're like Nazis. Mm. They're there to be hated, and everything they do is towards that goal. Yeah. Here, they can't even bother to get off their ass and capture the escaping prisoners, but they take great delight in showing the bones of their dead comrades to the remaining prisoners to destroy morale. I presume this was done so that there would be no issues with Savage's wholesale slaughter of them mm. as the series goes on, because one of the problems they had with action was killing people. Yeah. That was one of the things that the politicians complained about. So one of the things with 2000 AD was, well, if we make them humanoid robots, we can kill as many as we like. So that was the idea behind it. That was where 2000 AD came from. But in this, the Volgans are an alien race. Yeah. So we're perfectly okay with the mass slaughter of aliens then, are we? Oh, yeah. All right, fair enough. Which is kind of weird when they look just like people. Well, originally, as I've said, they were supposed to be Russian. Yeah. This was the Russian occupation of Europe. And that was that was quickly. The, the way of getting over it was if they said that they were aliens, yes. despite them looking like people, yes. they got away with it. Yeah. Yeah, so if it's a humanoid robot, you, oh, you can cut its head off. Nah. It really doesn't matter. Star Trek used to do it all the time. That's what science fiction does. Fair enough. Censorship. Makes sense. Yeah, fair enough. Page two, as alluded to above, Savage really is a rather stupid one-dimensional character and borderline thug. I don't know nothing about no Nobel Prize. Ain't got time for that. Where did that accent come from? Ain't nobody got time <laughs> I don't know nothing about no Nobel Prize, he proclaims eloquently, but it'll be useful to the cause, so let's get him. 
I did that. How was that? that, was, that was, was that a yeah. burly adequate Cockney accent? That was. Burly adequate is what I strive for. Yes, yes. <laughs> if Savage was in the next episode of EastEnders. Yeah! You know, if this happened in EastEnders, <laughs> I'd watch the show. Yeah, I like the name Savage, really. Oh, it shows yeah. you what type of person he is. Um, and a, a lot of 2080 characters were like this. Yes. Show the characterization. Damn. Duh, yeah. Judge Dredd. Yeah, yeah. The, the names were not particularly subtle. I feel sorry for the silk guy. Instantly, <laughs> <laughs> you're thinking, what a panzer. <laughs> well, is he not named after silk cut? Could be. He could just be named after cigarettes. This is a very bad name. It is a poncy name compared to Savage. My name's Savage. Silk. I'm Silk. I'm his friend. Friend of friend of. If, friend if Silk friend. was actually more badass than Savage, I mean, look at that handlebar mustache. <laughs> it was the seventies. <laughs> You know, when, before all this happened, he may have been a well-known porn actor. <laughs> that's, that could be what Peter Silk was. Soft Silk, Silk. Well, yeah. Well, you don't really want that in a porn film, do you? Maybe Silk referred to the sheets right. that he used. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going with yeah. that. That's a perfect explanation. Um, the art's brilliant in this issue. In this is issue, it? this story. I couldn't find it. I couldn't it track down who it was. Yeah, well, pretty much everyone who worked on 2000 AD in this era buggered off to DC at some point in the 80s didn't they yeah so I would imagine we would we recognise him when we know him but I couldn't find uh, a name for the artist on this trip so if anybody in the lovely listener land yeah knows who, who drew Invasion let us know because it would grow up good also on this page there's an excellent shot of Savage point blank blowing somebody away yeah I can see why 2000 he took off. Can't you? <laughs> it's just mindlessly violent in places. Mm. Absolutely fantastic. Um, it's shown though that there are three guards. Yet we only see Savage and Silk kill two of them. Yeah. What happened to the third one? Eaten by dogs. All right, I'll go with that. That's <laughs> fair enough. Although in 2000 AD, one would have thought they would have shown that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Page three. Savage offers to take all the prisoners with them, but they're so scared of the more monsters that they elect to stay still. Savage, true to form, doesn't care. He's interested in killing Volgans, and that's it. He's an interesting character in the, the he's, sense he's not. In the sense that he's not, yeah. He's, he's essentially he's what people who don't pay attention to Batman think Batman is like, <laughs> yeah. isn't he? Essentially, the Batman persona is this one-dimensional character. Yeah. who's single-mindedly focused on his mission. And there are people that think that's all Batman is. And when he's written by bad writers, that is what he is. But I do wonder what, what Savage going to do if he wins and he's got no one left to fight. Well, he's going to have to find another war. He's, a, he's a soldier without a country. He's a bloody lorry driver! <laughs> he's not a soldier! Right, fine. He goes and drives lorries for soldiers. Alright, fair enough. Supplying rations that, yeah. to the... Because it does beg the question, what's his life like after all this is over? If he survives. Would he go back to driving lorries? Mm, perhaps not. Because no. he's lost his family. That He's essentially the Punisher, isn't he? Right, no. What he does is he attaches like um, rockets to his lorry. Yeah. And machine guns and like one of those things for running over. So he creates a battle van. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's like Mad Max come again. So he becomes Mad Max. Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. All right, I'm totally down with that. He is similar to Dirty Harry in his attitude, only without any of Harry's redeeming qualities. You know, such as self-awareness. Because <laughs> he's totally just... He's a very interesting character, like you're saying, that he isn't. There is nothing to him at all. 
other than he likes putting guns in Volgan's faces <laughs> and blowing their heads off, yeah. which he does quite well. Let's give him credit. He's so, good at his job, yeah. I suppose. Um, I thought Invasion was a great strip, despite, or maybe because of, all the things we've talked about above. It was a pure satire on the police state and the resistance to same. Savage is an incredibly limited lead, and pretty much all of the strips focused on Savage attacking dirty Volgans with a view to killing as many as possible. Occasionally there would be attempts to give him some semblance of humanity. One really good segment has him rescue a bunch of kids and get them on a plane to Canada under the Volgans' noses simply because he had knowledge of the different fuel types of Concorde due to his son's hobby his son who has now been killed by the Volgans, but for the most part he remained the Charles Bronson of 2000 AD. <laughs> Gleefully blowing away dirty Volgans with reckless abandon. And I don't think we'd have him any other way, would we? No. Invasion's a great strip. They should have put him in flesh. They should have put him in flesh. That would be awesome. Yeah. Invasion has been collected in, um, in trade paperback. It would run for the first year of 2000 AD, ending in Prague 51, with Savage convinced finally that the United States would now be drawn into the war against the Volgans, so he didn't really have a proper ending. Savage would return in the prequel series Disaster 1990, and the sequel, set in 2004, simply entitled Savage. So he's still around, I think. So he liked him that much. Well, he disappeared from 1978 to 1990, so... Yeah. <laughs> Twelve years, though, he didn't do anything. What was interesting in that, though, is that the 2004 strip was published in 2004. Yeah. So then you've gone from being a futuristic strip to being a a parallel universe strip. Yeah. Because obviously we didn't have a Volgan invasion in 1999. Mm. At least as far as I know. (laughs) Unless it happened and I was just too wrapped up in myself to notice. We we got over it. The Russians went back and apologised. I mean, the Volgans went back and (laughs) apologised. Yeah. Um, there's a great advert here for the Batman and range of Corgi toys, which is drawn by um, Frank Langford, as actually signed. That's a great advert, isn't it? Yeah. Probably the only time you're ever going to see Batman in 2000 AD, but it's an exceptionally well-drawn one. The dynamic duo team up with Corgi's dynamic trio. Yeah. Robin, who only appears in one panel. Well, no, he's not. He's in two panels. Oh, three panels. Oh, OK. There you go, he's in at the end. So you get a great shot of the Corgi Batmobile with the, the blade that comes out the front. Don't, don't, don't we have that? I have that. What's this wee pale face? I broke that's it. That's mine. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. You not broke that one. That's mine. The firing triple rocket cannons. Alas, I don't have any of the rockets anymore. <laughs> Unfortunately. Because those same rockets would fit in the back of the James Bond yeah. um, Lotus from Spy Love Me. Which is exactly the same rocket. in the bath. Yeah. Because it goes, yeah, it went <laughs> in the bath. Yeah. The bat copter and the bat boat. Mm. Which were all awesome toys. Yeah. And right. I still have my Batmobile. Flesh, which was the next strip, uh, and easily my favourite of the early days of 2000 AD. By the 23rd century, man has drained the planet's resources burr, but thanks to time travel technology, the Trans-Time Corporation send rangers, such as cowboy Earl Regan, back to the days when dinosaurs ruled the Earth. The rangers round up these magnificent creatures and blast them back to the future so we can get real flesh back on the menu. It was created by Pat Mills and was the most violent strip in the comic. One infamous episode had a censored last panel where the central dinosaur character, Old One-Eye, bit a child in half who'd just gotten off the time train. (laughs) Did it have a a big censored across the panel? (laughs) He's biting him in half. 
Oh dear. The story for this one, again, brief, was... A holiday time train has crashed and old One-Eye, the ageing Tyrannosaurus, has attacked. She is tearing the train apart and eating all the passengers. The cowboy dino hunters, Brontowski and Claw, are opening fire with cannons whilst their leader, Earl Regan, tries to keep the train moving. He puts the Trans-Time Express into full thrust and bursts clear of the dino attack. Old One-Eye lets out a cry as the train speeds away and experiences a slight heart attack, but she shrugs it off. The train crashes into the station and the remaining passengers are sent home. Regan and Brontowski know that the time of reckoning between human and dinosaur is coming. Again, the art in this one's fantastic. And again, you don't know who it is. Again, I couldn't find out who it is, no. Um, the, the dinosaurs in particular are brilliant. Yeah. Which is it's kind of a major requirement for yeah, a script yeah. such as this. But they, they do look absolutely fantastic. Jurassic Park... Um, owes an awful lot to flesh because long before Jurassic Park 2000 AD had dinosaurs being used as theme park attraction mm. and offered up a great time paradox that we were responsible for the extinction of the dinosaurs because we hunted them to extinction subtext rapidly <laughs> becoming text very quickly in that one it's a great strip though if, if Jurassic Park had been this violent yeah it would have been an 18 <laughs> And yeah, this was sort of kids. Genius. Some great kids. Yeah, it was great being a kid in the 70s, <laughs> let me tell you. Um, the great first page is almost as splashed as one tiny other panel in the bottom right-hand corner. Uh, has raging T-Rexes attacking and eating the passengers with glee. Turn We get a full-on panel shot of a child falling into the jaws of um, old one-eye. Which is... <laughs> I don't quite know what to make of that. I, I presume as a child, I know this was brilliant. Oh, yeah. I, I really like the, char- the characterizations of all one eye, though. Yeah. I think the dinosaurs are better written than the people. The di- well, the dinosaurs are more sympathetic, which is the point of the story, obviously. Yeah. The dinosaurs are the ones being hunted to extinction. So we're supposed to like the dinosaurs. So, well, again, there's the whole subtext of, um, of nature and hunting an animal to extinction. Yeah. Isn't it? It's, it's not particularly subtle. Not really, no, but you don't really want it to be subtle. You don't want it to be being... subtle when there's people being eaten, mm. which is it's just Do awesome. I look into the subtext, or do I look at the child yeah, being as, eaten? As a child in 1977, <laughs> do, I, do I ponder the subtext of this story and devote my life to animal rights causing, <laughs> or do I just look at that cool panel where that kid gets bitten in half? Yeah. Which do you think we're going to go for? I think the animal rights the erect- <laughs> it's meat for it's death for no reason and death for no reason is murder well in this case there's no animal rights because you either eat them or they eat you yeah but we've gone back in time to hunt them <laughs> we, we wouldn't be there with <laughs> to, be the, to be eaten if we didn't invent this time travel thing so it's, it's a fascinating strip I, I love flesh I love its over-the-topness. I think it's absolutely fantastic. Um, page two references Orville, um, the irritating child who was eaten by one eye in last week's instalment, the, the censored panel yeah. that I talked about earlier on. Um, when I first read this, I was a bit confused as to why a passenger train would have cannons on it. <laughs> but then I remembered that it's a time train that is being sent back to the Jurassic Age. Yeah. So having cannons on it makes sense. A little bit of protection. Just in case, yeah. Um, Page three, it says a lot about where the writer's sympathies lie. In that, like you say, 
we get more characterization and sympathize more with old one eye yeah than we do with any of the people in the strip the fact that she has a heart attack here and then just shrugs it off tells us something of the toll this is all taking on her and her hatred for mankind that she's like I'm not dying yet I'm taking all with me and it's it's brilliant and we also learn that she's 120 years old which was um, a nice little nugget of information I thought page 4 in truth 2000 AD fashion Regan cares little for the passengers or for heroics he just wants to be paid so he's just saved all the lives and he walks around with his hat saying go on put some coins in here yeah which I thought was quite fun go on pay me or I'll throw you to the dinosaurs yeah which was, uh, I quite liked it. I thought that was good. Uh, Flesh was easily, as I've said, my favourite of the early strips. Essentially, it's cowboys versus dinosaurs. Yeah. Which is a cool concept <laughs> and was handled even better in execution. Very little time was devoted to the characterisation of the humans, who were mostly portrayed as venal and facile and totally confident that they were in the right and caring little for nature as long as they could make money off it. Alongside Invasion, I think we can take from this that Pat Mills has a very low opinion of humanity. I dislike the ending to this, really. This story? Or flesh, generally? This story. Right, okay. It's like the reckoning of human and dinosaurs will be soon. Yeah, they'll eat you. The end. You're, you're, you're shooting them up, you know, so... Yeah, you've attacked them. There, there won't be a reckoning. You'll, so. you'll all get eaten. Uh, well, it is coming soon. Flesh would only run for 19 progs. Hmm. But it would be so memorable, it would return for a number of sequels over the years, none of which Mills seems to approve of, if you've read any interviews with him. Pat Mills himself would return to the world of Flesh for prog 1724 in 2011 and again Flesh is available as a trade paperback collection which is well worth picking up um, Tharg has a, a reader's drawing page next where each reader wins £2 which will have been a lot of, if you think that 2008 at this point cost 8p yeah. if you've paid 8p for this comic and won 2 quid. <laughs> that's quite a return on your investment. Yeah. Isn't it? I was quite impressed with that. It's a page where readers have sent in their designs for futuristic cars and Tharg comments on them. Funnily enough, they all look like the same artist. Maybe they've been redrawn by 2000 AD artists. Well, doesn't that, like, get rid of the point <clears throat> of actually doing this as a competition? Well, maybe they've just sent them in. I don't know. You know what? I'm going to design a car for it to be redrawn. Well, I like that the first one is is what the folding car by by somebody called Paul Carr, appropriate enough from Chelmsford, and it's just a big car with uh, a big concertina in the middle. Yeah. We would let to get buses like that. Yeah. So that one, that one, that one came true. The next one is called the Sightseer, and it is um, it looks like a flying iron monorail thing. But it's got an open cabined seat at the bottom. I can imagine that's quite dangerous and also cold. If you look at it, the, the, the cabin bit is bigger than the actual thing itself. Yeah, and you don't get many people per ride, so I can't imagine it being cost effective. Uh. But anyway, that was from Anthony Cutland. Uh, the Satan book from Richard Simmons is just a huge armoured tank of the future for defence or attack and powered by solar cells. I don't know what Richard Simmons from London was thinking that we would all be driving around in tanks. The yeah. Volgans, man. The Volgans. <laughs> yeah. And sacked them on. Oh, 
you are so right. The Vulcan invasion's coming. Yeah. We better be ready for him. <laughs> we need these mass produced. We do. Uh, the Verticar from Adrian Rosser is it looks like one of those smart car Volkswagen things with a huge jet engine on its roof. So does that mean it flies down? Yeah, well, mm. I mean, it says in the description it's a helicopter fan. But that looks like a jet fan to me. Yeah. But anyway, it does say it can fly. So the implication must be it's got it's kind of like a... a propeller. A propeller of some description, yeah. Um, the next one... Shuffler by Vernon Sippel just looks like one of those tripods from War of the Worlds. Yeah. It's a big tripod thing with legs and it just strides out over traffic. It doesn't look like it could walk around it easy when you think that its legs are one in front of the other rather than next to each other. Hmm. Hmm. It does actually say the mechanical robot built replicas of them so they've been redrawn. So it's not the drawings of the actual people. Either that, but that's great. They don't kind of do that thing anymore, do they? Give away free money. Wish somebody give me free money. <laughs> uh, the next strip was Harlem's Heroes. Harlem's Heroes, again created by Pat Mills, was a mixture of the movies Rollerball and Death Race 2000, where popular sports have become life and death, and the action weekly strip Death Game 1999, in which a game of death was played by condemned prisoners. It was always my least favourite strip in the comic, largely because I don't care about team sports, and if Man City ever played Man United to death, I still <laughs> doubt that I'd actually watch it. Depends, to death. Yeah, maybe to the death <laughs> would make it more interesting. Get a ball through the face. Yeah. And then you start oh, the head. the balls off spikes. <laughs> you really wouldn't want to get hit in the nuts by one of them. You really you? wouldn't want to kick one of them. That's a good point, actually. <laughs> so do you win and lose a foot? Or do, or do you lose and get a ball to the head? Yeah. Can you imagine heading it? <laughs> <laughs> Poor goalkeeper! It's the goalkeeper I'd feel sorry for. <laughs> The premise of the strip was that, by the year 2050, the game of Euroball, football, boxing, kung fu and basketball all ruled into one, has swept the world. Players fly through the air wearing jetpacks controlled by buttons on their belts and score air strikes by getting the ball in the score tank. One of the top teams is Harlem Heroes. However, after making it through the preliminary round of the World Euroball Championship, the Harlem Heroes team bus crashes, killing all but four players. Louis Mayer, his brain alone surviving the tragedy, convinces his three fellow survivors, Slim, Hurry and team captain John Giant Clay, that they can still win the championship title. You know, if there was a sport that he rewarded you with earth strikes, I think I'd play it. <laughs> Not that kind of earth strike, dude. Who should I strike today? <laughs> Who should I blow up? Who's pissed me off today <laughs> that I want to blow off the face of the earth? Part man, part machine, Artie Gruber is out to destroy Harlem's heroes and opens fire at a grudge match between the heroes and the Montezuma Mashers. He misses and hits the leader of the Mashers, who careens into the crowd. Heroes player Giant, who witnesses the event, suspects foul play, but the match continues. As Gruber fires again, Giant spots him in the crowd and uses his jetpack to swoop up and punch his gun from his hands. Gruber runs and the heroes spot him, try to fall into the Masher's pits. Um, the art on this one was by Dave Gibbons, who did uh, go on to, to work extensively for DC Comics, particularly for Watchmen. Mm. I think he's probably what he's most famous for. Um, it's lovely. But I really have very little to say about Harlem's Heroes. It was always the strip I was most likely to skip. And even now, in rereading a bunch of 2000 Eddies for this, this show, it's still just not to my taste. 
me neither. It just wasn't my bag. And I love Death Race 2000. Yeah. The original. I mean, the Jason Statham remake's fun. That's because it has cars crashing into each other, though. It's Carmageddon the mover. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. That's that's what Death Race 2000 was. But, but this is death basketball. Yeah. Basket it's, death. It's rollerball. It's the uh, 70s yeah. rollerball. It's, it's just... It's just not very interesting to, to somebody who just couldn't give a rat's ass about team sport. <laughs> um, Harlem's Heroes would have quite the successful run in 2000 AD, continuing all the way through to Prog 27, and would be revived a few times over the years. It would also be the first 2000 AD strip to exist in the wider continuity, making references to Mega City 1, home to Judge Dredd, and Giant, real name John Clay, would have a son who would grow up to be a judge. So it was the first strip that would tie into the whole mythology of Mega City 1. Mm. It would not be the last. There's a letters page in which Tharg asks readers to write in and tell him what TV programmes will be on in 2000 and what planes and houses will be like. <laughs> well, being able to talk from the vantage point of 2013, <laughs> I think I can comfortably tell him that Coronation Street will still be on the air <laughs> and houses haven't really changed much. Apart from we've got wireless networks. I think that our future could be a living hell with radiation and ultraviolet rays poisoning all life on Earth. Pretty close, actually. Yeah. That's a t- that, that one, ten quid? Yeah. Blimey, where were they getting the money from? It's, <laughs> it's only ten issues old at this point. Where have they won ten pound? Now that's an even better return on your investment. Yeah. 8p, ten quid. What a deal. Screwdriver and cars. Predict the future. That's where it's at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Given the primo position of the colour centre pages, Dan Durr, space hyperhero, continues his battle for Jupiter. The art is by Bella, Dur- Bella Dinelli. This Dan Durr, sequel to the 50s original, was thawed out after 200 years in suspended animation, and thus highlighting that Durr was the UK's Buck Rogers, although his loyal coterie of helpers didn't make the transition. The story for this one is actually quite limited, because it's only four pages long, essentially, but it goes like this. The battle for Jupiter has begun. With Durr leading the charge against the evil Biogs, he launches himself in a small one-man craft armed with a number of tachyon torpedoes. The Biogs rip one of Jupiter's moons from orbit and hurl it at the fleet, destroying ten warships. As Durr approaches, he launches the tachyon torpedoes which destroy the Biogs craft. The art in this strip is superb. There's a wonderful two-page splash page that covers the entire double-page spread as I have pointed out, uh, which is simply gorgeous, and predating Alien, which was released in 1979, the aliens in this story secrete blood that burns through walls and people. Which I thought was... uh... See, you don't want to say that Rockney O'Bannon read Alien. Yeah. uh, Read 2000 AD, but 2000 AD has proved to be incredibly influential Mm. on a lot of things, hasn't it? To the point where one might say rip-off. Yeah. Robocop, anybody? Um, page three again simpler for the art the shots of the biogs ripping one of the moons out of of Jupiter out of orbit and throwing it at the fleet is just an exceptionally beautiful piece of work it may be stretching credibility somewhat that there should be ten ships that close to each other especially given our big spaces but it's an exceptional visual isn't it the best thing about this is the art yeah the best thing about this strip easily is the artwork Uh, page four the K-Craft that um, Dander takes off in is also a wonderfully designed spacecraft. It's... How can we best describe it? It's got like a jet pack at the back and then it's got a circular module that surrounds the middle of the craft. 
The front of the craft is designed in such a way that the pilot sits at the very front in what looks like a glass bubble controlling the spaceship. It, it looks like he's in just a huge transparent egg yeah. at the front of the ship. It's a glorious spaceship. I don't know how practical it is to put your pilot right up at the front in a battle, but it looks cool, so we'll give it a pass. As space opera, this is exceptional stuff with great visuals and some awesome pure sci-fi action. As Dan Durr, this bears little resemblance to the eagle strips, with Durr blowing away anything that moves, and his loyal compatriots replaced by equally trigger-happy thugs. Durr, similar to Superman, is a character that is resolute in his ability to not change, and nor should he. He should be idealistic and optimistic, and this is something that didn't really fit in with 2000 AD's worldview. Garth Ennis would write an excellent Dan Durr Returns tale for Dynamite in 2007, where he dirtied up the world Durr lived in, making it more politically ambiguous, but Durr himself remained the same, stalwart and true. Someone at 2000 AD must have realised that something was wrong, and this Durr was pleasing neither his older fans or new kids, and the strip was quietly rested in 1979. What did you think of the Dan Durr in this? I didn't like it. it was, is it... It was it was down there with Harlem Heroes. Was it? Yeah. It's one of your least favourites. The art elevates it above Harlem's Heroes. Even though Harlem's Heroes was drawn by Dave Gibbons. Yeah. The art in that was just fantastic. I do recommend Garth Ennis's Dan Durr. Yeah. That was seven issues of pure awesomeness. Heartily recommended. The next strip is Mach 1. John Probe again with the yeah. the rather unsubtle name was he's a probe oh, he's a, name. no no he's an agent he probes right. see yeah yeah I get yeah, so. I, thought I was going to say does he not work with um, Mr. Silk <laughs> Silk and Probe yeah. <laughs> in the palm industry <laughs> um, 2080 should have 2080 should have had a pawn strip you could have yeah. gone away with it because it was the business behind the pawn yeah or it was the sci-fi version exactly totally would have gone away with that yeah robots having it oh. Silk and big robot chubby yeah. Uh, John Probe was a British Secret Service agent who volunteered for a super secret procedure, basically a computerised form of acupuncture, that boosted his physical strength, speed and agility, all of which would be enhanced by compupuncture. Mock stood for Man Activated by Compupuncture Hyperpower, which, as acronyms go, is pretty tenuous. His brain was linked to an internal computer, so basically he was a cross between the six million dollar man, he was even drawn to look like Lee Majors, and Marvel's Deathlock the Destroyer, with the onboard computer which both characters talk to and call Pewter. Again, it was created by Pat Mills and drawn by Enayo. The story for this one? Uh, this one has a title, it's called On the Roof of the World, which is unusual for 2008. Uh, in the Armenian mountains, Turkey, John Probe, aka Mach 1, has been sent to locate Igor Kuvovsky, a trained killer, and bring him to the West, alive. Probe locates Igor and makes him travel across country, but Igor plays for time awaiting the arrival of a chopper. With the troops in pursuit, Probe uses all of his hyperpower to neutralise the enemy agents and destroys the chopper. Igor, however, escapes in the confusion, and Probe skis after him, avoiding Igor's bullets, but they cause an avalanche. Again, Probe avoids certain death, and Igor pulls the pin on a grenade and threatens to blow his own head off, but Probe arrives in time to hurl the grenade free. Back in London, Igor gives up his information after interrogation, and Moxon, the creator of Mach 1, is concerned about Probe's health and how hard they are pushing him. Sharp, the man in charge, cares not for Probe the man, only for Mach 1. 
Uh, the similarities to the six million dollar man are prevalent throughout the strip, with Mach 1 bending the barrel of a gun with one hand, avoiding bullets, skiing at 81 miles per hour, and running in excess of 90 miles per hour. Probe's visual similarities to Lee Majors are also rather obvious. The differences are plain, however. Far from the benevolent Oscar Goldman, Sharp is not interested in Probe as a person, and is in fact more similar to Darren McGavin's character in the Six Mill pilot movie. In addition, Probe kicks two people to death on page two, punches one to death on page three, and hurls an ice picker to helicopter, killing the pilots on page four. There's also the rather uncomfortable implication that Sharp tortures the information he wanted from Igor. Mm. I'm sure that probably isn't legal. Oh, well. But, well, who cares? <laughs> just had someone pitching and kicking people to yeah, death. So. We've, we've just had quite the death count in this four-page story. Yeah. So what does one more matter? <laughs> what does it matter if we interrogate somebody to death? Oh, it's all in good fun. <laughs> it was Russian. I mean, Volgan. <laughs> no, I think this guy actually, they don't make any presence, pretense of the fact this guy's Russian, do they? Yeah. So we obviously didn't care about him. <laughs> Although, to be fair, yep. we're reading into it that they tortured this information out of him. So it's not obvious. All it merely says in here, it's not on panel, yeah. all it merely says in this is, after interrogation he gave up the information. <laughs> and so you're left wondering... Did they just serve him tea and crumpets? After a week of interrogation. <laughs> Which involves him his eyes pulled up bamboo stick. <laughs> and some water torture. <laughs> he had the full Machone. Oh, dear God, yeah. Oh, don't, don't let... Yeah, Machone was his torturer. That would have been awful. <laughs> Bring out the spoon. No, I'll talk, I'll talk. <laughs> the filthy spoon. Uh, not the comfy chair. Uh, this subplot of um, Sharp's treatment of Probe would bubble under for the remainder of Mach 1's run in 2000 AD, which would be through Prog 64. With Probe becoming steadily more suspicious of his handlers and after discovering prototype Mach 0, and that Sharp was secretly working towards an interstellar war with an alien race, Probe would take matters into his own hands, and rather than allow this from happening, Probe killed Sharp and was subsequently killed himself by soldiers. So Mark 1 didn't have a happy ending. No. It was a good strip, though. I like Mark 1. Because you like $6 million. Yeah, pretty much, because that's pretty much what it is, isn't it? It's yeah. a $6 million man, British division. You probably didn't cost $6 million, though. <laughs> <laughs> a couple of quid. <laughs> the two-pound man. Yeah, the couple of bills, man. <laughs> uh, the final strip in the prog is, of course, the mighty Judge Dredd. Dread was created by John Wagner and designed, as mentioned at the top of the show, by Carlos Esquera. Set in the dystopian future that is Mega City 1, Dread is a futuristic law enforcer who has the power to be judge, jury and executioner. The central theme of a fascist police state has led the strip to be used as an often black humoured commentary on British society and politics. Call Me Kenneth was written by John Wagner, returning to the strip after an early falling out with editor Pat Mills and Carlos Esquera. Call Me Kenneth, a carpentry droid, has rebelled against his programming and killed the occupants of a police hovercar. In the judge's canteen, Dread muses how giving robots feelings is a mistake, as serving bot Walter the Wobot eagerly delivers drinks. The call comes in that Call Me Kenneth is disobeying the third law of robotics, and Dread is assigned to take him out. Dread opens fire, taking Call Me Kenneth's head clean off, but CMK is prepared for this as his circuits are deep in his chest. CMK attacks Dredd using his array of carpentry tools and believing Dredd to be dead drives off to kill more fleshy ones. 
As he leaves, Dredd blows out the Skyrail power cable directly over CM Key's headless body. The resulting power surge causes CMK to cut himself in half with his own tools, but rather than the end, Dredd realises that this is but the beginning of the War of the Robots. Which was the first extended narrative Judge Dredd arc. War of the Robots would last until Prog 17. Uh, Esquera's art is particularly good in this strip, although Dredd still looks a little thinner and younger than we're used to. Unusually, whilst Dredd doesn't age in real time, he does age, and he's now said to be in his 70s, having served as a judge for over 50 years. It took some getting used to going back to early Dredd. Yeah, his helmet's different as well. His helmet's completely different. Which, which makes you look at it and go, mm, that's a bit strange. And he's, he's drawn as a lot thicker and heavier set than this now, isn't he? I think he is better how they've made him now. Yeah. He does, he does look more formidable yeah. at this point. You need to watch the Dread movie. Okay. I was pleasantly surprised with how good Dread was. I, I still remember watching the old one. For, no, forget the Stallone one. Did that never happen? No. They did not happen. <laughs> These aren't the drugs you're looking for. Okay. You do not need to serve me death sticks. You need to go home and rethink your life. And not watch the Judge Dredd film. And not watch Judge Dredd, no, watch Dread. Right. Starring Carl Urban okay. as Dredd. Right. It's very good. Okay. It's a pity they won't do a sequel, because they didn't not. make enough money. Yeah. Which is sad. Is Esquire the guy who works on um, Bits of Preacher? Yes, he did the Santa Killers miniseries, didn't he? I always thought that was Esquizera. I always pronounced it Esquire. I thought there was a Z in it. No, I don't think there is. Why I could I, be wrong. Why have I always read a Z? He also did Bloody Murray. Yeah. For Helix Comics with, with Garth Ennis again. I read that, yeah. And uh, has he not done some issues of the boys with Ennis? He might have done. He might have done. Did, did he also do the, the Rifle Brigade? Oh, he may have done Adventures in the Rifle Brigade, yeah? Yeah. Which I just didn't like. No, I, I didn't, didn't like Adventures in the Rifle Brigade. Anyway, um... Call Me Kenneth's dialogue in this strip is hysterical. Call Me Kenneth likes doing bad things, he says as he stuffs a cop in the rubbish chute, and his murderous rampage is said to be in direct contravenance of the third law of robotics, which here is said to be obey humans. Asimov's laws of robotics were first coined in his 1942 story Runaround. However, the third rule has nothing to do with obeying humans. That's actually rule number two, because I looked him up. Did you? Yeah. Rule number one was a robot may not uh, injure a human being or through inaction allow a human being to come to harm. Rule number two was a robot must obey the orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law. A robot must protect his own existence as long as such protection does not conflict with the first or second laws. So when Dredd says he disobeys the third law, actually he's not. He's protecting his own existence. But he, Granted, he he's is injuring a human it, being yeah. and he's disobeying human orders, but at the same time, that's not the law he's disobeying. No. Uh, Walter the Wobot, who cannot pronounce his R's, becomes a regular character in the strip and ends up, after helping Dredd in the War of the Robots, being his house droid. Walter the Wobot. He's the Jonathan Wasp of Wobots. <laughs> what did you think of Judge Dredd? Um... I enjoyed it. It's just a fight scene, which was, it was pretty cool. Yeah, it is just an extended fight yeah, scene, but it's that, great. That's all Judge Dredd's there for, just to punch things. And yeah, to what's wrong with that? Shoot things. That, that, I like the nails that the robot shot at. Yeah, he fires his nails at it. I love that all his um, gadgets are carpentry tools, because he was a carpentry droid. Yeah. I thought that was quite funny. I loved it. I thought this was really good. Flesh and Invasion were still my favourites, but you can see why, Dredd's as Judge Dredd gets fleshed out more... 
yeah. you can see why that's the strip that becomes the, the breakthrough hit mm. in many ways were there none others that were as big as Dredd I don't think any other no because it's Judge Dredd's mythology he's the only one who's become his own yeah everybody knows who Judge Dredd is yeah especially here especially in this country mm. everyone's aware of Judge Dredd they may not know of Invasion or Flesh or Mott Wall no. chances are if you're of a certain age you'll know Dan Durr yeah. Because Dan Durr was phenomenally popular in Eagle. Well, Judge Dredd... Wasn't Dan Durr the Judge Dredd but before 2008? Yeah, Eagle was from the 50s. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying in the intro. It's it's very surprising now to look back at the first issue of 2000 AD and A, Dredd's not in it. Mm. And the, the big selling point is the return of Dan Durr. Yeah, it's Dredd that would become 2000 AD's poster child. Yeah. And you can see why. The, the, what they did to Dan Durr... In 2000 AD, he wasn't Dan Durr anymore. No. So they basically they messed with him too much, and ultimately Dredd was the one that, that went forth. In later stories, like... Because um, ABC Warriors, I think, ties into Dredd mythology as well. Mm. How Mega City 1 came about. And I think they've tied Invasion into it. Yeah. I think they've ultimately established that Invasion is the beginning of the world becoming Mega City 1. Mm. I can't remember. I can't remember all the backstory, but it's something like that. The final page of the comic is a series of flash playing cards. Yeah. But they require that you cut your comic up. So um, I can't imagine that too many people did that. As it was the back cover, though. As it was the back cover they made, on you? This went over a couple of issues, and then there was an issue with the instructions on how to play the game. Yeah. Which basically resolves around just eating things. So it wasn't very difficult to follow the you instructions. No, it was pretty cool. I've only ever read these early issues digitally. Yeah. Like, the only 2000 AD comics I've actually read, physically, the, the free ones for Free Comic Book Day. Yeah. But um, at some of the comic marts um, one time, this guy was selling really old ones, including the first issue. How much for? No, I, I didn't. I saw the first issue on eBay this week for nearly £1,500. Really? Yeah. Well, um, that, it was quite expensive, but but what it was, it was essentially like um, tabloid-sized paper. Mm-mm. Yeah, they were big comics. Yeah, and it, it was just stapled together. Yeah. I thought that was like, pretty cool, considering... Like, the size of it, and it's essentially a newspaper for kids. Yeah, essentially, the comics of the time were newspaper-sized. Yeah. Um, 2000 AD was newspaper-sized, and all the IPC magazines were. So, like, Battle... Was Battle IPC? I can't remember. Wizard and Chips was, like, a comedy magazine that they put out to compete with the Beano and the Dandy. That was newspaper-sized. Mm. The Beano and the Dandy were tall, but thinner. So they weren't quite newspaper-sized, although they were the same height. Right. And then, like, the Marvel UK ones were the same as the Beano and Wizard and Chips. They weren't quite news, but 2000 AD was a big comic. Yeah. It wasn't quite treasury-sized. I mean, they still are big now, aren't but they? it was. I don't think it's, it's not as big as it used to be. It's about the same size as, like, SFX magazine. They're still pretty big for Yeah, a it's still the same dimensions as a magazine rather than a comic. Yeah. But, no, compared to what it was when I was a kid, 2000 AD was a big thing. Mm. And it was a big comic book as well. Uh, 2000 AD is, of course, a seminal British weekly comic. Although the year 2000 AD has long since gone, the comic has gone from strength to strength, with the comic winning numerous awards, and pretty much every UK comics talent has worked on it in some capacity over the years. The free spinner that I mentioned as being a free gift on issue number one was also on eBay this week. Oh, yeah. for fi- and the, were, at the last I saw it, it was £52, and it hadn't finished. Yeah. So just the free gift was at 52 quid. Mm. And I haven't gone back and looked and see what it ultimately sold for. But the guy was doing alright on that investment, wasn't he? Yeah. 8p, 
52,000. <laughs> 2,000 Eddie is quite the lucrative if you've got number one, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Or issue zero. Or issue zero, yeah. Anyway, that was my independent pick for this week. What was yours, Michael? Well, uh, when I chose my comic, you said you were just doing the Judge Dread story. No, I didn't. I said I'm doing 2,000 Eddie. No, you said you were doing Judge Dread. Did I? So I went on the, the police. Oh, right. Kind of. Kind of-ish. Thread, yeah. Um, I found out, like, two days ago, uh, that, that you weren't doing just the Just Dread one, you were doing a completely different issue and all of it as well. So, my, mine <laughs> kind of... Uh... So this is my fault? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so this webcomic that you've picked, entirely yeah. my fault? Yeah, okay. it is actually. Alright, fair enough. Okay, my pick is um, Axe Cop. Uh, which started when 29-year-old Ethan Nicole wanted to start a webcomic after finishing his comic series, Jumblespuzz. What the hell was Jumblespuzz? It was a word uh, invented in Calvin and Hobbes. Was it? Yeah. I should have known that, because I love Calvin and Hobbes. Mm-hmm. We've got all of the Calvin and Hobbes strips on the bookshelf. Yeah. Uh, he began work on the webcomic, and one day played with his younger brother, Malachi Nicole, who was five at the time. His brother was playing as Axe Cop, a tough police officer who wields an axe during battle. Using Malachi's stories as inspiration, Ethan used Axe Cop as a means of practicing practicing for his planned webcomic. The first four comics were all drawn in December 2009 and posted to Facebook. In 2010, they created a website and began posting there. Soon after the fifth comic was put up, and three days after the website went live, Axe Cop went viral. This led to recognition and Dark Horse Comics making a deal for a limited print and an online run. Last month of recording, which would have been March, uh, at WonderCon, a trailer was shown about an upcoming television show based on the comic. Now, I'd heard of Axe Cop, but it never showed any interest until I was browsing through a comic grabby thing we have and took it by completely legal means. <laughs> <laughs> but it was a webcomic, so you could read it for free at some point. I could have, actually, yeah. That's my argument. I read through it, and despite not being a fan of parodies or stories written by a five-year-old, <laughs> I thought it was pretty darn fun, and the art its and the art on its own was great. A clean, cartoony look similar to Cameron Stewart. Now, I thought it was pretty fun, though. Did you? Yeah, um, I actually did. Uh, see... If you take it in a light-hearted tone, and keep in mind it was written... Written by a five-year-old. Yeah, but it shows it was written by a five-year-old. But it's fun. Yeah, yeah it has moments. Um... It, the, I mean, the first issue that Michael's picked is essentially just um, single-page or two-page strips. But there's... I mean, I think the best way to demonstrate, I think, the um, the ethos of Axe Cop is perhaps for us to act out the first strip. Well, sh- should I do the synopsis first? All right, you do the synopsis first, and then we will, we will reenact the first strip. Right, OK. Who do you want to be? I'll be Axe Cop. All right, I'll be Fluke Cop. Means <laughs> <laughs> I have one line of dialogue... You then get to... Well, I'll I'll do the narration. You be Axe Cop, I'll be Flute Cop. Flute Cop is arguably the coolest one. Is he really? Arguably. Uh, Arguably, yeah. Depends who he is, this page. Yeah. Axe Cop, the beginning, was written by Malachi Nicole and drawn by Ethan Nicole. One day, at the scene of a fire, a cop found an axe and became Axe Cop. Needing a partner, he had tryouts and found his partner, Flute Cop. Makes you laugh, so it does. It it, it, yeah, you made me laugh. (laughs) The two went to kill some dinosaurs. (laughs) (laughs) Gee, a 
five-year-old wrote this, did he? In a tie with 2000 AD. <laughs> well, just, that would have been awesome. <laughs> Axe cop in flesh. <laughs> but flute cop got dinosaur blood on him after cutting the heads off and became dinosaur soldier. <laughs> oh, dear God. Wanting to become more powerful, Axe Cop and Dinosaur Soldier held more tryouts and are visited by Telescope Cop. <laughs> <laughs> it's only funny the one I'm reading now. The, yeah. But they're interrupted by Cydrazon, a giant robot. Axe Cop throws Unibaby at it. <laughs> <laughs> Unibaby! Which is a baby with a unicorn. He just Thing throws it, it out of his head. and blows the robot's head off, of re- revealing its controller pretzel head. <laughs> Axe cuts off pretzel head, pretzel head, and takes over Cydrazon with Dinosaur Cop. Telescope Gun Cop then starts a team up with the Unipaper. <laughs> a little known issue of Marvel team up. <laughs> Axe Cop and Dinosaur needed money for the gun bill, and so started working at a fruit stand. <laughs> Being a cop doesn't pay, does it not? No, not? Not well enough, no. <laughs> now that they're having the guns taken off. <laughs> Dinosaur Cop ate an avocado and then became Avocado Cop. <laughs> Which of course? Axe Cop ate a lemon and became Axe Cop with a lemon. Telescope, Cun Cop, and Unibaby showed up and bought some apples, and then took to their secret lab and ate, which gave them apple hands that let them shoot apples. <laughs> yes, which was... Did, I gotta confess, that bit made me laugh when I was reading it. When I finally got into that, this is just purely ridiculous. So they ate an apple, which gave them apples for hands, which let them shoot apples from yeah. their hands. I confess that I did laugh at that. That did make me go. Oh. That was your problem with it the other day. Yes. Axe Cop and Avocado Cop, believing that Telescope Gun and Unibaby were up to no good, broke into their files and found maps to their lab. Once third, in a brilliantly labelled um, filing cabinet, yeah, that actually says maps, <laughs> maps to evil lures. <laughs> Once there, they threw lemon and avocado grenades at them and destroyed them. But when they returned back to their fruit stand, saw all their fruit had been stolen. So Acton Avocado had to use all of the maps to find and fight all of the bad guys responsible. Oh dear, mate. Should we we act out the first page? Should we act out the first story? This is the first story of Axe Cop. It was written and created by Malachi Nicol, age 5, with art by Ethan Nicol, age 29. Hmm. One day, at the scene of a fire, the cop found a perfect fireman axe. That was the day he became Axe Cop. I need a partner now. So, Axe Cop had tryouts and hired a partner. My name is Flute Cop. Sign up here. We have a gang of dinosaurs to kill. So, the new team went to the land of volcanoes and fought the gang of dinosaurs with their axe and flute. I will chop your heads off. So they gut the mother and father dinosaur, <laughs> chop their heads off, then devise a plan. We should put these heads on a stick and hide bombs in them. But Flute Cop got dinosaur blood on him. I feel strange. The dinosaur blood causes Flute Cop to unexpectedly transform into a dinosaur soldier. And so they became Axe Cop and Dinosaur Soldier. <laughs> <laughs> the, the 
was stupefied. Because <laughs> it was, what the hell is this? But it's fun. I, I, I think it took me a while to appreciate it, to be honest with you. Well, being written by a five-year-old, the story starts straight away with Axcott being introduced in the first few panels and the mm. actual story starting in the third. Yeah, well, whilst the brevity of storytelling is to be commended, being written for a five-year-old, the story, and I use the term loosely, it makes little sense. Which I understand is the point, and I commend the pair of them for getting this into print. A little bit of narrative cohesion may have been nice. <laughs> At that, what point... So, they go to the land of volcanoes to attack the gang of dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. So there's a land of volcanoes where dinosaurs still roam the earth, and he just goes and cuts the heads off. Yeah. Did that go down well with with with, with the five year old? The meat industry. Oh, did the five year old? That that middle panel is a flesh crossover. Yeah. You do know that, don't you? <laughs> So we haven't chosen this works. Yeah, it totally ties in with 2008. Yeah, yeah. Page one, I do love the line of dialogue, I will chop your heads off. <laughs> yeah, this was more funny than actually any good, but that was funny. I yeah. felt sorry for the dinosaur, though. They're just doing nothing. And yeah, and suddenly Axe Cop and Flute Man they, they get their heads flute cut off cop. and put grenades up them. What the hell does Flute Cop do, though? He just stands there blowing his flute. Tied Piper. All right, fair enough, I'll give you that. I do love that you actually found some subtext to this. <laughs> yeah. I was very impressed with that. Yeah. Um, the story, uh, if you notice, is all about losing heads. Yeah. Where um, it, the dinosaurs get their heads cut off, Cydrazon's head explodes, and Pretzel Head gets his cut off. I did find Pretzel Head hysterical. <laughs> there's just, there's a guy. Where is it? Is that, is that the top? Cyrodon was controlled by Pretzel Head, who could only use his mind to control robots. He could also turn his head into a pretzel. Yeah. So fortunately, he was called Pretzel Head before he could turn his head into a pretzel, or did that come later? Might have come later. All right, fair enough. He has no arms, though. And then they chop his Pretzel Head off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> got hungry. Just, this was just mad. Well, actually, they did get hungry. Dinosaur soldier's eating his head in the neck. Yeah, panel. the dinosaur soldier is eating the pretzel. Yeah. So the guy's eating his decapitated head. Yeah. A five-year-old wrote this. Yeah. That's pretty young. <laughs> That's hardcore. Yeah. That's a hardcore five-year-old. <laughs> yeah. The, the flute telescope gun cop looks a lot like the singer from um, Motorhead. He does look like Lemmy. <laughs> <laughs> God, Lemmy's in this comic. Um, it does feel like it was written by somebody with the attention, the, the attention span of a five-year-old. Yeah. Oh, wait a minute. Um, my favourite person in this was Unibaby. Where the hell did Unibaby come from? It's a baby with a unicorn thing <laughs> stuck out of his head. And uh, they the, the get the ability... I do. I did like the filing cabinet maps to bad guys' lures. <laughs> yeah. All the weapons. Yeah, some of the sight gabs were really funny, such as Axe Cop being born with his moustache. And there was a fantastic gag on page 14, I have to say, that the snowman and the Christmas trees come to life. <laughs> yeah. And the Christmas tree, all he does is sing really annoying songs. Yeah. I thought that was, that was hysterical. Because you've got a Christmas tree yeah. that sings annoying songs. So I did like the fact that when they brought the Christmas tree to life, that's what it did. It didn't attack anyone. No. It just sang, we wish you a Merry Christmas, badly. I thought that was quite funny. Um, you know we'll we, we'll have to watch the uh, cartoon when it comes we out. We will have a to, potato of it. We will have to watch the the cartoon when it comes out because this this was a boat that left me on the island. You know I get why some stuff's popular. 
I understand that this is a famous web comic, but for me that's like Piers Morgan winning some kind of award. Surely it's offset by the fact that you're still Piers Morgan. <laughs> so, you know, I wasn't inclined to read any more of this, but I have to say I've had more fun talking about it with you yeah. than I did reading it. So I don't know what that says. It's pretty fun to read here. Yeah. It was yeah. It, it had moments. If if you read it how it's meant to be taken, then uh, it works. It's purely ridiculous. Yeah. I did like that. There's a second section in this called Ax, Ax, Ask Ax Cop, mm. and uh, the Ask Ax Cop where he got the idea for what he was doing. And so he said there was no train, and I went to a cop station, so no one was there, so it was a free sign-up, so I became a cop. <laughs> and then he runs out with an axe. Yeah. And I do love there's a little note from the, the writer saying, I created a continuity goof here. Then mm. the first story I established that he found the perfect axe. But here I have him running out of the shop with an axe. And I'm reading this going, that's what <laughs> you're worried about? <laughs> Continuity-wise? Yeah. And if nothing else in this makes any sense, why are you bothered about that? So I didn't, I didn't understand why he was concerned about that. Fair play to him for getting this out there. Yeah, I mean, all the credit in the world for. Um, but hey, with things like Twitter and uh, Tumblr out there, it's, it's not that hard to believe, though. Yeah, well, you know, we've not managed it. Sure. So, so that was Michael's pick, which was Axe Cop. Yeah, and uh, my pick was 2000 AD, which was is take well from worth that it. what you will. Yeah, take from that what you will. Uh, next week on, but it's not got a superhero in it season, which I think is, that's what I've decided to call it now. Yeah, you? yeah, that title's cool. No, I, I changed the title. Titles are cool. Uh, I am going over to the wild and wacky world of Dark Horse comics. Yeah, for another licensed tie-in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think I will be looking at something from the Aliens output. And you've not decided. No, you've decided for me. I have offered a suggestion of what you could possibly pick. Because so far you've been trying to keep to a theme. Mm. And I said, you don't have to. If you want to do an issue of Hellblazer, do an issue of Hellblazer. I'll I'll just go out there and do whatever, man. Yeah, you just go and do whatever you want. Spin around in my bedroom and close my eyes. I want to stop a point forward. and That's what I'm doing. That would do. Because is is next week the last one? Next week is. Next week is the fourth and final one. But it's not got superheroes in it. And then... We've got a couple of ideas, but we've not actually decided what we're doing. No. A couple of things are in the pipeline. So, we'll, uh, we, well, we hope you enjoyed that one as much as we did. That was rather an offbeat episode, wasn't it? Fun to record, though. Fun to record, yes. I, I can't imagine it being a highest-rated episode ever. No. <laughs> it may have at least three listeners. Well, just from curiosity. Yeah. That was an idiot. Axe cop? <laughs> Yes, yes. All right. Yeah, fair enough. All right, well, well, we hope you enjoyed listening to that as much as we enjoyed recording it, which is by no means a given. Yes. I grant you. And we'll, uh, we'll see you next week for the final episode of But There's Not Got a Superhero Next Season. Bye. Bye.
kids comics is that the devil will make work for idle hands to do production and all opinions expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and you probably shouldn't take them too seriously all music and sound clips used in the show are for illustrative and review purposes only and no infringement is intended Andrew and Michael make no money from the production of this show which is a source of much consternation new episodes drop every Thursday over at two true freaks which is spelled L-I-B-S-Y-N. Old episodes of the show are also archived on the Two True Freaks internet radio feed at twotruefreaks.libson.com. If you wish to communicate with Michael or Andrew or any of the things they've discussed about on the show, you can email them at heykidscomics, all one word, at virginmedia.com. If you wish to view the covers of the comics we've talked about this week, we have a website www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com If you are so inclined but don't actually want to drop us an email but just wish to ask us a quick question or say hi, you can Facebook friend us. We're using Hey Kids, all one word, as the first name and comics as the surname. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Tonight's episode, isn't it? I'm just going to spit on the microphone. So, gob on you, because I ate your guts. Gob on you, kick you in the nuts. Very nice of you. Sitting here wearing bin liners. (laughs) Green (laughs) earth.